All right. We are uh, starting 1 Corinthians 15, still in 1 Corinthians 15. And let's take a look at our quiz. Everybody got the notes? Uh, should have. Uh, because Christ is the first fruits, there will be a full harvest of believers who will be raised from the dead. True. 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 Death is the consequence of Adam's sin. True. The eternal state is immediately preceded by the millennial kingdom. False. The eternal state is immediately preceded by the millennial kingdom. Unless you're thrown in the great white throat. Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm the just, of the year. I was reading, yeah. Well, I wasn't trying to be that. Uh, that was the, a trick question. It was it? Well, on that diagram, you had the kingdom, then you had the eternal. You go from the kingdom to the eternal state, basically. Yeah. You, you have some events, obviously. Yeah. You know, you have. I was going by the chart. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, well, I probably put immediately. I just meant that uh, okay. I, maybe I should have said the eternal state is. Uh, precedes the millennial kingdom, or the millennial kingdom precedes uh, right. uh, precedes the kingdom or the eternal state. But I'm just trying to say, you go from the from the millennial kingdom, a thousand year kingdom, to an eternal kingdom, the eternal state. <clears throat> so sometimes uh, in the Old Testament, the kingdom that's described is called an eternal kingdom. So we sort of understand that to be the millennium is the first thousand years of that where you have this trial period where man is tested again. Because remember we said during the millennial kingdom you have children born who are born into a perfect society where there is no outward expression of crime or sin. It's immediately punished. Perfect society. Jesus is the king. Perfect government. And yet what happens at the end? Man rebels again. Depraved people will always... And so you have that thousand-year kind of introduction, and then you have the eternal state, the eternal kingdom. The Mormons believe that vicarious baptism of already dead individuals gives them a second chance in the afterlife. True. That's what they... That's what they... That's why they do it. They baptize for people who are already dead. Usually their relatives. Uh, usually they baptize for their relatives. Um, yes. I'm confused. So they have like a substitutionary baptism? That's what vicarious means. Vicarious means substitutionary baptism. Okay. This can only, as I read, as I don't know much about it, I just read about it. It's, it can only happen in, the temple, in a temple, a Mormon temple. But huh. um, generally they want, they, they try to restrict it to a family member being baptized for relatives who passed away. <coughs> who either didn't accept or didn't hear, didn't know. So your great-great-great-grandfather. So they have the most extensive genealogical list in the world. The Mormons do, tracing genealogy back. So you can be, you baptize for all your relatives going back hundreds of years, 200 years, 300 years, whatever. You can be baptized, you can have, you know, so you could have a person who's baptized for a hundred relatives, one person. And so they will get a chance in the afterlife. They baptize for every president of the United States, the Mormons have. Remember I said last week, they got into trouble because they baptized for some Jews who were killed in the Holocaust. 
and a lot of you can you can if you're a Mormon and you're in good standing I forgot the level but you can go and say hey I want to be baptized for so and so okay so uh, you know um, that's really presumptuous <laughs> well they say they're very careful to say this doesn't violate the person's free will because in the afterlife they can say I don't want it I don't want it I don't want the splendors of Mormon heaven. I want to go to hell. You know, I mean, it's, I guess it's what, <laughs> your choice. But you don't have to accept it. You can reject it. Our own baptism is a picture of our future resurrection. True. Death, burial, and resurrection is a picture. So uh, we're looking at this section that begins in verse 29 through 34 additional arguments for the resurrection. And uh, we looked last time at verse 29. We got started on that and talked about verse 29. And I was thinking this morning, uh, does it bother you that Bill Combs doesn't know, <laughs> maybe it doesn't bother me, but that somebody like Bill Combs who has taught there's a doctorate in New Testament in Greek and has uh, taught for many years, doesn't know what the correct view of this verse is. Does that seem strange or odd? Or It may seem strange or odd, but the point is, uh, the, one of the doctrines that we, we believe and we teach, it's a technical term called the perspicuity of Scripture. Perspicuity of Scripture. And that just means the clarity of Scripture. And so especially since the Reformation, it's been taught that Scripture is basically clear as to the major doctrines, salvation, the Christian life. But it doesn't say that we. it's clear about every little detail. Every little detail. So the Bible was written um, uh, as an occasional document. This, this was a letter to a church. We're just seeing one side of it. We don't know what all they said back to Paul. We Remember, he, they wrote a letter. So God has not designed Scripture so we understand every single little detail, but so that we understand the general truth, the basic truths, the truths of salvation. So there's no question about those. So it's clear. So it doesn't bother me that I can't get this worked out because I know what Paul is teaching here in the sense that he's making an argument for the resurrection. So whatever Paul, whatever this, whatever this meant to the Corinthians, whatever they were doing, what this meant, we know Paul understood it. Hey, Corinthians, why would you do this if there's no resurrection? So we understand the the argument here. I get the argument that this verse is an argument for the resurrection, even though I I may not be able to pin down exactly what's going on because you know I just don't know what they were doing it's 2,000 years ago I'm not sure what they were doing and so I, so I just can't be positive and that doesn't bother me that I can't figure that little detail out because it doesn't affect the normal Christian life the major doctrines what we believe and so forth you know I don't have to worry about this at night uh, though I did worry about it quite a bit when I was trying to figure out what to say to you uh, what is that word again? perspicuity so it just means the clarity of Scripture. It's clear. It's generally clear. So this is something the Reformers emphasize quite a bit, that Scripture is basically clear. So the reason, one reason they emphasize that is that uh, 
is because uh, the, the Roman Catholic Church denies that. They denied that Scripture is essentially clear that if you read the Bible, you'll get confused. So we can't give the Bible to the common person because they'll get confused, they'll get into heresy, and so we've got to interpret the Bible for you. The church will tell you what the Bible means. The Reformers reacted against that. They believe in the priesthood of the believer. The believer is able to come to God and the believer is able to understand Scripture. You know, we all need help. We all, you know, it's helpful to know backgrounds and other things. But as far as the essential message, we can get that on our own. And so many people have been saved. I mean, I've heard over the years numerous stories where people were given a Bible and they got saved just reading the Bible. You know, it seems <laughs> seems difficult in a way, you know, because most of us were helped. But I've just known people, I've known seminary students who read, who given a Bible, read the Bible and got saved reading the Bible. So that it's it, it can happen because Scripture is essentially clear on the basic truths. So I, I made an argument that uh, one possible interpretation of this just mention it again, where Paul would be saying, if there is no resurrection, what will those who are baptized for the dead? That is, he's using it metaphorically. Baptism, our, our baptism, is a baptism for dead. That is, we are dead. And I pointed to verses that say the body is dead. Uh, um, the, the body is dead because of sin. Uh, we mentioned a number of verses there, Romans 8.10. The body is subject to death because of sin. Uh, Romans 6.3 and 5. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized in Christ, were baptized into his death. So baptism pictures our death with Christ, our burial, and our resurrection. And so I was making an argument that one interpretation, the church interpretation of the early church fathers was that when Paul says, uh, what will those who are bad, he's talking about believers. As believers, we're baptized on behalf of us who are dead. We're, we're ultimately going to die. And if the dead are not raised at all, remember when I said that at all, that's an, a word that can modify raised or it can modify the dead. If the truly dead, the actual dead are not raised, why are people being baptized for them? So he's just... The, the interpretation would be that your own baptism that you're undergoing speaks of your death, burial, and resurrection. So why would you undergo baptism if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead? That's that's one possible interpretation. Now, admittedly, I said there's a lot of others. I'm not sure about this, but I do know that whatever Paul is saying, they understood it. <laughs> And they understood Paul to be saying, what I'm saying here is an argument for the resurrection, because that's what he's arguing here. And he goes on now to do that. Uh, in uh, verse uh, 30, he says, And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? Paul next points to his own behavior that affirms the resurrection and makes no sense without it. To deny the believer's resurrection, according to Paul, is also to deny the resurrection of Christ. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised, which amounts to a denial of the Christian faith. 
It's not logical for him and the other apostles, the we here, uh, he says, why do we endanger? Maybe the apostles, maybe co-workers. It's not logical for him and the other apostles to endanger their lives if there's no resurrection. So again, Paul is giving them another argument. He says, why am I enduring all this? Why am I putting myself in danger if there's really no resurrection of the dead? Verse 31, I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's testimony about facing death every day reminds us of such passages as 1 Corinthians. I just put a couple of them up here. You remember he says things like in 1 Corinthians 4.9 that we have covered. It seems to me God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession. Remember he's talking about the Roman triumph where a general conquers some people. He comes back into Rome and at the end of the procession he brings the captives, the slaves. He says, we apostles, we're just like the the worst people. We're, at the, we're like the slaves because of the treatment we're receiving and so forth. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise. Remember, he's mocking them here. We are weak, but you are strong. We are honored, but you're dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags. We're brutally treated. We're homeless. And he'll say in 2 Corinthians 6, Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way in great endurance and troubles, hardships and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments and riots and hard work, sleepless nights and hunger. So there are many passages here where Paul faced death, faced hardship, and could have died. What follows the statement about facing death is in the form of an oath when he says, Yes, sure, yeah, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus. This is true just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus. It's in the form of an oath. Testifying to the truthfulness of his testimony of facing death every day. Paul is in effect swearing by something of ultimate importance. A modern day equivalent might be, I swear by all that I hold dear. In this case, it's the very existence of the Corinthians as Christians. About you in Christ is that reference. As a result of his apostolic labors, the new Living Translation gives us kind of a commentary. He says, For I swear, dear brothers and sisters, that I face death daily. This is as certain as my pride in what Christ Jesus our Lord has done in you. Verse 32. If I fought wild beast in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, and for tomorrow we die. So Paul elaborates in verse 30, 31, by giving a specific instance uh, of, of, facing, of, of himself facing death. Paul is presently writing in, in this verse from Ephesus during his three-year ministry there recorded in Acts 19. It's not clear if fighting with wild beasts is to be taken literally or metaphorically. There is no record of a literal event in Acts 19, and because he did not die, it seems likely that Paul is speaking metaphorically. Thus, this statement is commonly understood as a reference to the opposition he faced in Ephesus that we know endangered his life. So I don't know if you can remember the situation there in Acts chapter 19. Paul comes to 
Athens in Acts chapter 19. He's there for probably about three years. He has a long ministry there. But his, his evangelism uh, is so effective that uh, the local, some of the local merchants are being upset because Ephesus was a great, I don't know if you'd call it, I, I used to call it the Disney World, the Disneyland, of the, Disney World of the Ancient World because, uh, not quite the same thing, but maybe it is. A lot of people are at Disney World on Sunday. This, <laughs> but, anyway. but Ephesus was the uh, was a center for religious worship, uh, uh, fun and games, activities, plays. Everything in the ancient world connected with entertainment was always connected with religion too. It was a worship of a god or a goddess or something. And so the goddess Artemis was worshipped at uh, Ephesus. Uh, she had a huge temple that's no longer there, that's, that's been destroyed. It was much larger than the Parthenon in Athens, uh, three or four times larger. And so Athens had all kinds of uh, activities and entertainments. People came there to worship the goddess. She was a fertility goddess. And that was a huge thing in the ancient world. Remember, there aren't any atheists in the ancient world. As far as, I mean, there's no, nobody running around saying, I don't believe in God, I'm an atheist. You just don't get that. People thought, okay, I need fertility in my family. I want to have a lot of children because they can work on my farm. And you know, I, wa- I want to have a lot of fertility for my animals. I want my animals to reproduce. I want a lot of fertility for my crops. Fertility was a big thing. So how do you get this fertility? They don't know anything about scientific farming or anything. You go to the gods. You go to the goddess, Artemis. And she's portrayed as a fertility goddess in Athens. So people went there and worshipped her and sacrificed in order to gain fertility for their cells, their animals, their crops, whatever, that kind of thing. So this was a big deal. And there were races there, games there, theaters there. It was just a really a huge thing. And so there is a... Uh, a Mer- uh, some people, craftsmen there, who make these little silver uh, souvenirs, statuettes of Artemis, you know. Um, and so the problem is people are turning away from the worship of Artemis because of Paul's preaching of the gospel. Some people are turning, and they see the gospel as a threat, Paul and the gospel as a threat. So they instigate a riot in Ephesus, and uh, they say this this man and uh, this gospel, this what they're what this guy is preaching. Um, he's saying, remember the Artemis, the the, the uh, guildmaster uh, says uh, Demetrius. He says that uh, these people, like Paul, are trying to tell people that there aren't any gods uh, at all. There are no gods made by human hands, and so you know the the Artemis that we worship, the statues. These these are not really gods at all. They're just really idols. And so, you know, Ephesus is in danger of losing its reputation. We're in danger of losing our money. They, in fact, say our business. You know, we're going we're gonna to be suffering financially. So, remember, they get together as a big crowd, as a big mob, and for three hours they, sh- they shout, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. For three hours they just get into a frenzy. And uh, they come into this theater. Ephesus has a theater like a lot of uh, uh, Roman cities do seats about 25,000 we're told 
<clears throat> are dead. So they grab a couple of Paul's companions and bring them into the theater. Remember in Acts 19? And they shout for three hours and all this. And Paul wants to go in and try to help, you know, diffuse this situation. His friends say, hey, don't go in there, man. Don't go into that theater. And finally, the, the, uh, the city clerk uh, comes in and says, he disperses the crowd. Remember, he comes, hey, we're, what are you here for? What are you doing? You know, these people, you don't have any charges. You haven't brought any charges. This is an illegal assembly. So he disperses the crowd. So um, this may be the uh, particular, uh, this may be the kind of thing that Paul is referring to. So many people think that when Paul says, I fought with wild beasts in Ephesus, uh, he's not talking about literal wild beasts, but, you know, the kind of opposition that people face. There is no reference to Paul in the book of Acts being thrown to the beast and when people get thrown to the wild beast, they don't usually come back and tell you about it. You know, they, they're, <laughs> they're kind of eaten up by the wild beast, killed and devoured. So it seems unlikely. Um, in 2 Corinthians one eight, writing from Macedonia, shortly after leaving Ephesus, Paul says, We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, pressure far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life. So Paul says, I went through some tremendous problems. Probably all, you know, I could have been killed at Ephesus, all kinds of opposition. That Acts report, that Luke reports some of it. I despaired even of life itself, you know. And uh, what is the point of all that if there is no resurrection? Paul ends by repeating the position that he had been arguing all along. If the dead are not raised, the conclusion is that of willingly facing death and enduring the life, daily struggles of life, if there is no resurrection and thus no hope, then one might take the route of despair. Well, let's just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. You know, what's the point? We might as well just enjoy life if there's no future, no resurrection at all. Verse 33. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. The words do not be misled are the same expression translated do not be deceived in 6.9. They could be translated either do not be deceived, do not be misled, could be do not deceive yourselves. The Corinthians are being misled or deceived into believing that there is no resurrection of the dead. How they are being misled, Paul explains by use of a proverb thought originally to be from the Greek writer Meander uh, who said apparently bad company corrupts a good character. That is, other people said Meander wrote this in a certain thing. We don't actually have Meander's work, but it's commonly. It could be. I say it may have been a common uh, saying by the time of Paul, so it could have been just picked up in a common saying. Uh, bad company corrupts good character. Paul's use of it has the more specific focus for the Corinthians of warning them to avoid the corrupting influence of those who are denying the resurrection. The Corinthians were probably being led astray by influential non-Christians espousing the predominant Greek view of death, which denies the resurrection we talked about. Verse 34, Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. 
For there are some who are ignorant of God, I say this to your shame. Instead of being deceived or deceiving themselves, the Corinthians need to come back to their senses. The command to stop sinning could apply to any number of things mentioned in this letter. We've seen a lot of sin that Paul has talked about. However, in this context, it's probably connected with the denial of the resurrection. That denial probably led to ethical and moral decisions that did not look beyond this present life. The attitude expressed in the proverb, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Those who are leading the church down this path are ultimately ignorant of God, since the denial of the resurrection is ultimately denial of the Christian faith and of the true God. So what we learn in this section is that how what one believes about the future directly affects how one behaves in the present. What we believe about the future will and should affect how we behave in the present. Well, now we come to the nature of the resurrection body, verses 35 through 49. One of the reasons that the Corinthians may have had difficulty with the bodily resurrection of believers is that they probably understood the idea, as we noted earlier, as only the reanimation of corpses. But, of course, that is not what our resurrection bodies will be like. Paul understood that Christ's resurrection was not the resurrection of a corpse, but the transformation of his physical body into a glorified body. So it will be with the believer. The resurrected body maintains a continuity with the past while being transformed for the conditions of a heavenly existence. Paul will now explain the nature of the resurrection body. Verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Paul opens this discussion with a couple of questions that might come from a hypothetical opponent, but someone will ask. There is a close connection between these questions, with the first question made more specific in the second, because the Corinthians could not understand how it's possible that the dead are raised, that is, how can a decaying corpse be resuscitated, They had given up on the idea of a bodily resurrection altogether. Paul will now explain how the bodily resurrection is possible and the kind of body those who are resurrected will have. Verse 36. How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but a seed perhaps of wheat or of something. The objector's questions in verse 35 are foolish because they fail to take into account. Uh, They fail to take God into account, excuse me. They're foolish because they fail to take God into account. Paul uses an analogy from nature to get his point across. He begins with an emphatic you in the original language that does not come across exactly in our English translation. You, Paul argues who would even ask this question, have the answer from your everyday experience of sowing seed. If a person wants to grow a plant, they put a seed into the ground that has to die in the earth before it springs to life. We cannot press the analogy to say that a resurrected body requires a prior death, since both in verse 52 and 1 Thessalonians 4.15, Paul writes that people alive at the time of Jesus' return 
will receive their new bodies without first dying. Paul's point in the analogy is that in the normal Christian experience, death is the precondition of the life to come. God's purposes are not frustrated by death, as with the seed, what is sown in death is brought forth into life. Also, when you sow, verse 37, the seed that is sown is different from the new plant that springs up from the seed. There is continuity, but there is also transformation. So also then, with spiritual things, one cannot judge from the human corpse alone the exact nature of the transformation that will take place in the resurrection. The resurrection is somewhat of a mystery. You know, we don't know exactly how that resurrection body will be and work and so forth. We know Christ had a glorified body and he was the disciples recognized him and so forth. We get a little glimmer there, but we're not told a bunch. But that mystery does not invalidate its reality. So Paul is hoping to get them to see that the, the resurrection body is not an impossible concept to grasp. Um, you have examples in nature of something dying and then a new transformation. Verse 38, But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. God gives it, that is the resurrection body, the form he has determined. That is why the questions of verse 35 were called foolish. God does not according to his plan and will. God does according to his plan and will. And what pleases God is to transform our lowly bodies so they'll be like Christ's glorious body, Philippians 3.21. But to each kind of seed, God will give its own body, indicating there are different kinds of bodies in God's creation. Paul will now elaborate on this point of different kinds of bodies in verses 39 through 41. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh. Animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. The stars differ from star in splendor. In God's creation, there's a great variety and kinds of bodies. First, in verse 39, Paul calls attention to the animal world. There are heavenly bodies, verse 40. Then there are heavenly bodies, verse 40. These animal bodies and heavenly bodies are different, have different properties and are made from different substances, each adapted to their own particular existence. Paul's listing of the bodies may be moving from the days of Genesis, creation in Genesis in reverse order. People in day 6, animals in day 5, and the heavenly bodies in day 4. Also, earthly bodies and heavenly bodies also differ in splendor or glory. And among the heavenly bodies is a difference in splendor from the sun to the weakest stars. The point the skeptical Corinthians should be taking from all this is that since there are many, so many different kinds of bodies in the world, they should not assume that a resurrected body is just like our present bodies, just a resuscitated corpse. A resurrected human body could therefore have more splendor or glory than an earthly human body. Verse 42. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. 
It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It is raised in power. The previous analogies now lead to the conclusion Paul wants the Corinthians to draw. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The contrast between the two bodies Paul expresses by means of the verbs is sown and is raised. The idea of the resurrection is certainly behind the second of these verbs. The raising obviously speaks of the resurrection. Is sown takes us back to the word sow in verses 36 and 37 in connection with the seed that's buried in the earth. Paul most likely was referring to the character of the mortal body before death. In other words, the earthly body is distinguished by perishability, dishonor, and weakness, qualities that are typical typically on the greatest display as one passes from life to death. The earthly body is perishable then it is subject in, in that it's subject to corruption. It is subject to dishonor and that it can suffer shameful treatment. Remember, to this very hour, we go hungry, we're in rags, we're brutally treated, we are homeless. It displays weakness in that it's subject to physical infirmities and deformities, and then it wastes away. Remember, Paul had a thorn in the flesh. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, though hourly we're wasting away. But what the Corinthians have failed to consider is the transformation that God will effect. It is raised imperishable. Not only that, but it will be raised in glory so that it will be like his glorious body, as Paul reminds us in Philippians 3.21. And while weakness characterizes the present body, it will be raised in power, a description of its permanent heavenly state. Verse 44. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. What is placed in the grave is a natural body. The word natural describes our physical body in terms of its essential characteristics as earthly and therefore belonging to the life of the present age. The body that will be raised from the dead is called a spiritual body. The word spiritual describes the future resurrection body as belonging to the life of the spirit in the age to come. It is spiritual not in the sense of immaterial, but it's supernatural. It is a body that is animated by the Spirit of God. It bears the likeness of Christ. So shall we bear the image of the heavenly man, he'll say in verse 49. It bears the image, the likeness of Christ in a transformed body, fitted for the new age. God has already so arranged the universe that our bodies, that there are bodies of all kinds adapted to their various existences. Verse 45. So it's written. The first Adam became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. After speaking of the natural body and the spiritual body, Paul moves to the representatives of these bodies, Adam and Christ. Paul quotes from Genesis 2-7, where God formed the man out of the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Adam, the first man, became a living being. He is the representative of those who are animated by the human soul. Christ, who is the last Adam, became a life-giving spirit. In verses 21 and 22, Paul had introduced the Adam-Christ analogy, 
There he pointed out how our solidarity with Adam leads to our death and Adam all die, while our solidarity with Christ by faith leads to our future resurrection and Christ all will be made alive. Here we learn that Christ himself will one day give life to our dead bodies. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Also, the order is important, for just as Adam came first, then Christ, so also the body we receive is the physical, natural body, the first body we receive, and the second one we will receive is the spiritual body. Now, this may seem rather simple to us. What's the big deal? It makes a lot of sense to me. But to these Corinthians, this is, you know, <laughs> this is new stuff. They've never, you know, this is... They, this is, there's nothing like this in the, any religious system they've ever heard about or anything with it. We're used to Christianity. We've talked about the body. We hear it all the time. But this is this is wild stuff to them in a sense. They, this is really... So Paul is really taking them step by step by step through this. Verse 47. The first man was of the dust of the earth, and the second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so also are those who are of heaven. The, he- the earth, as was the earthly man, so also are those of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. Paul continues his contrast between Adam and Christ. Adam, according to Genesis 2-7, was formed from the dust of the earth. Christ, of course, came down from heaven. Just as solidarity with Adam enables us to live a physical life on earth, so our solidarity with Christ will enable us someday to live in heaven. As believers, we are able to share both kinds of existence, that of Adam through our humanity and that of Christ through our future resurrection. At the rapture, we will receive a heavenly body that is just like his. Paul makes clear that this transformation has not yet occurred. We shall bear the image of the heavenly man. It lies in the future at the rapture. Until then, humans bear the image of the person of the dust, Adam. When that day comes, we will be caught up in the air or raised from the dead and go to be with him, as he said to his disciples in John 14. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. On that day, we will have a spiritual body that is a body that will bear the image of Christ's body, which can inhabit heaven. All right. We come now to a concluding summary. The final section, this final section, brings to a conclusion Paul's argument for the future bodily resurrection of believers. The analogies in verses 36 through 44 have argued for the reasonableness of a resurrection body, while verses 45 through 49 have argued for its certainty on the base of Christ's heavenly body. Now Paul emphasizes the absolute necessity of this transformation in order to enter our heavenly existence. In verses 50 and 53. He also explains that both the living and the dead will be transformed at the rapture. Verses 51 and 52. This resurrection transformation will mean the final defeat of death. Verses 54 and 55. Finally, Paul concludes by observing that Christ, even now in the present, 
gives believers victory over sin and the law, verses 56 and 57. All this leads to a final exhortation to labor for Christ in the sure hope of the future resurrection. All right, the resurrection, Paul says, is a necessity for the life to come. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. This verse is set up as a synonymous parallelism. Parallelism. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God equals, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Flesh and blood refers to the body in its present form, composed of flesh and blood, and thus subject to weakness, decay, and death. In other words, perishable. Such a body, as we have noted, is not suited to the eternal kingdom. That is the eternal state when he hands over the kingdom to the Father, as we saw back in 1524. Verse 51. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the imperishable must clothe itself with for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. So Paul says, I'll tell you a mystery. Mystery refers to something formerly hidden from God's people, usually in the Old Testament, now revealed in the New Testament. The rapture was not revealed in the Old Testament. Paul has already indicated that at the coming of Christ, those who have died in Christ will be raised up to receive their glorified body. Now he adds that not everyone will die. Sleep here. Those who are alive at the rapture will not only escape physical death, but will also will but also will instantaneously be changed have their bodies changed into their resurrected bodies in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye. This instantaneous change is necessary, Paul explains, for here, because a perishable body must put on an imperishable, immortal body before it can enter the eternal kingdom. Verse 53. The resurrection is the defeat of death, verses 54 to 57. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Paul moves from what must take place, verse 53, to what will take place when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. What will happen is the destruction of death itself. As Paul noted earlier in verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. But here in verses... In these verses, Paul is exulting and rejoicing in the coming victory over death. Paul cites Isaiah 25, 8, 
Death has been swallowed up in victory in Hosea 13, 14. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? To prove his point. For the believer, the harshness and fear of death have been overcome by the resurrection of Christ. Death no longer has its sting because as sure as Christ was raised from the dead, we will also be raised. While it's true that believers must still die, will still die, death will ultimately not be victorious. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Paul has reached the climax of his argument in verses 54 and 55. His argument that death has been overcome by the resurrection leads him to add a theological point about the relationship of sin and the law to death. The sting of death is the law um, in that sin is the cause of death. Remember, we looked at Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin in the world, death through sin... And in verse 17, for by the trespass of the one man, the sin, the trespass, death reigned through that one man. So, um, uh, the argument that death has been overcome by the resurrection leads to add a theological point about the relationship of the sin and law to death. The sting of death is sin, and that in that sin is the cause of death. And the power of sin, he says, is the law. Now, this seems a little strange. You're bringing up the law here. How the law gives sin its power is explained in some detail in the book of Romans. So Paul is going to write 1 Corinthians, and then, you know, there's 2 Corinthians. He writes Romans uh, from the city of Corinth uh, some months after this, or, you know, six months or maybe something like that after this. So uh, he explains it quite quite a lot in Romans in the book of Romans, especially chapter six, seven. How the law gives sin its power is explained in some detail in the book of Romans, where Paul says the Mosaic law, though good, has a definite sin-producing and sin-intensifying function. It has brought consciousness of sin, wrath transgression, and an increase in the severity of sin. So first the law, um, first the law has brought knowledge or consciousness of sin. Romans 3.20, Paul says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law, rather through the law we become conscious of our sin. So the law brings consciousness of sin. The law spells out God's moral law and demands of a holy God. In our constant failure to attain the goal of that demand, we recognize ourselves to be sinners. Second, the law brings wrath, Romans 4.15, because the law brings wrath, Paul says. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. The law brings wrath in that the law renders people even more accountable to God than they were without such law. The law turns sins into transgressions in that people are now, with the knowledge of God's commands, transgressing 
are going beyond the limits of a definite statement of God's will, which increases the severity of sin. So uh, the law was brought in so the transgression um, might increase. Remember he says in Romans 5.13, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law, but before the law was given. But sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. That is, it's not considered a transgression. It's not technically. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam and Moses, even those who did not sin by breaking command, as did as Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. So what Paul is arguing here is in Romans, he makes a distinction between sin and a transgression. So uh, a sin and a, trans- a trespass or a transgression. So you can commit you can commit sin without committing a trespass, without breaking a, 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 a known law or a you know a, uh, a, a an actual statement. I mean, I'm trying to think of an example I used to give, but uh, you know, say you live in a new subdivision, they put up a new subdivision in your place, and they have, they don't have any speed limit signs up here. You know, if you go through at 100 miles an hour and a cop sees you, you're probably going to get a ticket. And you can say, well, hey, it's not posted here, you know. But I'm just saying, you know, there's a sense in which even without that speed limit sign, you know, you're not supposed to drive 100 miles an hour in some subdivision. But a speed limit makes it a transgression. You have crossed the barrier. And so the law tells us explicitly what God wants. And if we break that, we have transgressed. It's worse. It's worse to you know to know that you have sinned, to know that uh, that you have done wrong. You're you're under greater condemnation. So, uh, third, our sinful passions are actually aroused by the law. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law. You know that's just the way it is. You know people say. Um, you know, if you if you have a sign that says, "Don't throw your cigarettes butts down here," you know, people. <laughs> you know, when you see that law that says, when 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 you tell your kids, "Don't do that," you know, "Don't climb on that chair." You know, that's the first thing they want to do is climb on that chair. You know, we, it's just like, you know how that is. I, don't tell me I can't do. Don't tell me I want to do what I want to do. I'm autonomous. I can do like I want. So the law tends to arouse our passions. It arouses our sinfulness and so forth. Paradoxically, our desires to disobey God and the law are exacerbated by the law itself. By setting forth God's standard, the law arouses sin by stimulating our innate right rebelliousness against God. The believer still battles sin as long as we are in this mortal body. Only the resurrection will finally overcome sin's deadly poison, is Paul saying. So even though we're saved and we have victory over the dominion of sin, as Paul says here, we still battle. Verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul concludes with a final thanksgiving to God for providing in our Lord Jesus Christ the victory over sin. Over sin, death, and the law that he has just discussed in the previous verse. As Romans 6-8 through 8 explains, believers presently enjoy a victory over the dominion of sin and that we are no longer slaves to sin, 
but a complete victory awaits. So what Paul is teaching in about sanctification there in Romans 6 is that for sin shall no longer be your master. You won't have dominion. So the unsaved person is simply has one nature, an old nature. Their bent is towards sin. When we were before we were saved, our natural bent was towards sin always. We had no other tendency. But when we're saved, that dominion, that sinful dominion, is now overcome. But thanks be to God that you used to be slaves to sin. You have come to obey God from your heart, the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You've been set free from this dominion. Sin is a master and have become slaves to righteousness. So, Paul sees the Christian as a person who basically wants and desires to obey God. We are slaves to righteousness. That's what we want. That's what we desire, ultimately. We don't... We come short. We know that. But we have godly desires because of this new nature because we have been transformed. Whereas the, in our unsafe state, we didn't have that. We were just slaves to sin. But ultimately, we still have to deal with sin, as we know. That's why we come to church, and your pastor, Ken, beat on us. And <laughs> he beat on you women today, so you know, us men are in good shape. Right? Not coming here. I think I have a uh, funeral that day or something. <laughs> I hope it's not mine. But <laughs> Finally, the resurrection is an incentive to service. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Therefore, Paul says, because of the certain hope of the resurrection... And Jesus' triumph over sin. Do you ever wonder why I have that GE? I, I worry about Sally back there because she's looking at my, she's an English teacher. And I, you see that G-E-S-U-S apostrophe S? Now, generally, it's G-E-S-U-S just apostrophe. But some years ago, the Chicago Manual of Style decided to change that. It used to be like Moses apostrophe. So now they say, and I'm going with the new. I'm, so, so don't say I'm wrong here. I got the Chicago Manual style on my side here. They actually say apostrophe S now. Paul says, because of the certain hope of the resurrection and Jesus' triumph over sin, the Corinthians should stand firm and let nothing move them away from the continuing to affirm the resurrection. They had, as Paul declared at the beginning of this chapter, received and taken their stand on this truth. This firm conviction concerning the resurrection is the reason we can give ourselves to the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Jesus' victory over sin and death in his resurrection should be a powerful incentive to make the number one thing in our lives our labor in the gospel ministry, or to borrow a phrase, a purpose-driven life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these great truths about the resurrection. We're thankful that we can look forward to the day when we will be through with this mortal body and will put on the resurrection body. We would love for that to be at the rapture so we can just exchange one for the other. And so we look forward to your coming and this time of, of, of ultimate victory. We pray that this will give us incentive in our lives each day to live for you, to serve you, and to be concerned about uh, what you're doing in the world. 
the spreading of the gospel, uh, the teaching and training of God's people, encouraging one another. Give us, each one of us, a desire to do these kinds of things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.